This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Going to venues to see dance, theater, and musical performances during the early years of the pandemic was almost impossible, forcing some arts organizations to close their doors. Then emergency COVID-era funds came in, which was a lifeline for many venues across Chicago. But that funding has dried up, leaving many parched for dollars and having to once again make drastic decisions. The Looking Glass Theater in the heart of the Mag Mile recently announced massive staffing cuts and that they're pausing productions till spring of 2024. Midnight Circus is a troupe of acrobats and trapeze artists also recently announced they are shortening their annual city tour due to production costs. And they're not alone. Last month, the League of Chicago Theaters said its discounted ticketing program sold 1,200 tickets a week before theaters closed for the pandemic. Today, the League says it's selling only about 600 tickets a week, so half as many. We're going to hear from one organization that has cut some programming this year. Julie Jenkins is the Artistic Director of Midnight Circus. Welcome to Reset, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me. So talk more about Midnight Circus. For those who aren't familiar, what is it? Well, Midnight Circus is a, a group of acrobats, actors, dancers, singers, musicians, and uh, one rescued pitbull <laughs> that uh, are committed to breaking down the barriers that separate our art forms and to building community through the art of circus in neighborhoods all across Chicago. Wow. And the, the circus has toured parks across the city for years. For years. We you're putting, started. Yeah, you're putting on these amazing shows. Wow, that's a long time. This year, though, you announced, as I mentioned, you're scaling back. You won't be able to tour this year. That's right. What went into that decision? What, what, what exactly happened? So the interesting thing about Midnight Circus in the parks is that um, we actually don't have a hard time with our audiences. Like our our audiences last year on our tour, we played in a sh uh, to over 15,000 people in our fall tour of circus in the parks. Um, wow, that's a lot. In, in Wells Park alone, we had over 5,000 people in one weekend. So... So people are coming out. People are coming out. Our issue really is that um, when we started Midnight Circus in the Parks, we recognized that there was great disparity in access to the arts. Um, and we thought in order to change that, we would bring high-level arts to neighborhoods all across the city. So our little circus tent became a portable theater that we would bring into the community. And we would work with community partners and build our brand that way. Um, tickets were always made accessible and affordable. They ranged from $5 to $20. Um, and we played to over 20,000 people annually before the pandemic. Mm. When the pandemic hit, we, um, when all organizations were forced to stop, um, we were reached out to by communities all across Chicago saying, we're hurting. Is there anything you could do? So we shed our big top and we went into the open air and we worked with the Department of Public Health and the Chicago Park District and we devised a safe tour um, and continued yeah. our operations free. How are you feeling about that change? Well, the, the change was a temporary fix in order to continue to... Um, build community, which is part of our mission. But we knew that we would have to return to the model of charging ticket prices. Um, that was not supported by the Night Out in the Parks initiative. They want to offer free programming. Um, and so 
we sort of got stuck for a couple of years between 2020 and this year where one end of our funding revenue, which was granting from them, got cut. And we weren't allowed to go back to a model that worked, which was charging ticket prices. Mm -hmm. So for a couple of years, we were able to write grants and grant our way out of it through Shuttered Venue Grant and our three grant and other rescue type grants. But eventually when you choke off funding sources from both ends, we're not going to be able to operate. So this year when that happened and we realized that, okay, the corporate sponsor um, ship is down, uh, individual donorship is down, mm -hmm. um, and we were not able to write the, the grants out of it, um, we knew that we needed to go back to a ticketed price and um, yeah. the park said no. So we... We, we're going to do one park. We're doing a Hail Mary. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, and we'll circus. talk more about some of those those pivots. Sure. You're listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're discussing how arts organizations are funded with Julie Jenkins, who's artistic director of Midnight Circus. We'll add some more voices to the conversation now. First up, Claire Rice, who's executive director of Arts Alliance Illinois. That's a nonprofit that fights for arts resources and policies benefiting the arts. And she joins us now. Hey, Claire, welcome back. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for having me. And David McDermott is here, Executive Director of Hubbard Street Dance. Hey, David. Hey, it's great to be here. Claire, how familiar does does that sound? Uh, I know you've both been listening along to my conversation with Julie. Yeah. Uh, how familiar is that, that an arts organization has to cut programming or, or just scale things way back? Yeah, I mean, it's an all-too-familiar refrain in this moment. Um, as you said at the outset, we're still... Um, rebuilding. And, and we always knew, as we said, uh, when we were receiving those large-scale relief grants from the government um, for our sector uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, we've said, you know, last to, or first to close, last to reopen. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, unfortunately, still a, a real refrain for, for many in our sector. Not all, not all, but many. Yeah, last time we had you on the program, you were mentioning how uh, theaters and arts organizations were facing uh, the end of significant federal, state, and local support, and Correct. that their current business model needs to face some significant changes in order to survive. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think the pandemic really, I think as we discussed before, you know, exacerbated some of the challenges to the business model for the performing arts that we saw even well before the pandemic, the end of subscriptions, um, increased costs. This is just um, system wide what we're what we're facing in this moment, yeah. um, and and the the appetite for relief from the government has dried up. But I will say that over the course of the last three years and our relationships, you know, particularly with our city and our state governments, um, we we have opportunity and there has been wildly more investment in the arts and creative community. Uh, we need them to continue to push through, and, and it will not be um, at the same scale as um, the large-scale relief program. But we have established some new baselines, particularly in the city of Chicago, for um, direct support of our sector, and we need to keep pushing there. Yeah. David, Hubbard Street Dance has been wowing audiences for nearly 50 years. Did you feel that you had to adjust programming post-pandemic differently than you have in the past? We brought in a new artistic director uh, during the course of the pandemic, so our programming shift, shifted naturally. Yeah. Um, I don't think that, uh, I think Linda Denise Fisher-Harrell, our new artistic director, 
Um, her vision is a much more uh, accessible vision to a broader swath of Chicagoans. I don't think that was pandemic related. I think that's just uh, Linda D's new vision. Yeah. yeah. New person, new vision. So where has Hubbard had to make cuts? Yeah, so uh, Hubbard Street, I think, like many performing arts organizations across the country, is seeing audiences down about 20%, um, which uh, which has been tough on us. I think we are also seeing reductions in corporate funding, just like uh, Midnight Circus. We're seeing foundation funding across the industry down about 20%. Individual giving is flat, um, which with inflation at 9% really yeah. is, feels like a cut. And so Hubbard Street, um, from pre-pandemic times, we've reduced our, our administrative staff by about 50%. So um, wow. we've made, re- yeah, and that's just kind of the new reality for Hubbard Street. We're really lucky to have been able to um, keep artistic funding, uh, funding flat. Mm-hmm. And um, we just entered into a new five-year contract with our dancers, um, which is great, yeah. ensuring 52-week contracts. But, but losing but, so many people, though, yeah, right? Losing I, half mean, of our I, I know what staff. it's like here on Team Reset when one person's out. Yeah, it's <laughs> much it's, less losing 50% of my team. Yes, everybody wears multiple hats these days. And um, I think uh, we are lucky to all be uh, in love with our art. And so it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not easy to do, but we do what has to be done. Julie, you're nodding. Yeah, I mean, it sounds familiar. I mean, we're 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 a small but mighty organization. We were able to keep our employees um, through some of the rescue funding, but we didn't have as big of a staff, obviously. Um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's yeah. a tough uh, environment out there. I I think um, I think there's a way forward. I like to believe there's a way forward. I think that um, it starts in communities. It starts in building active arts participants within communities. I, I'd like to, I mean, I, I, we, we've been doing that since 2007, getting community buy-in um, where that there's an ownership. You're not, a, you're not expecting people to pay for parking and go out to dinner and buy an expensive ticket price, you're bringing arts and culture into their neighborhoods and they're actually Midnight Circus has given back close to $2 million to the community groups Mm. that have partnered with us and those funds have gone to rebuild park play lots in five parks, a nature walk in one park, a um, re-renovation of a field house, um, after-school programming, tumbling mats. I mean, the arts can change a neighborhood. The arts have a unique power to transform a community. And, um, Mm. and, And in order to do that, we need to bring high level arts to communities, not the number of times we heard you know, just do a scaled back production and bring it into the community. No, we're going to bring the full thing. Yeah. Claire, what are some uh, organizations, uh, you know, Chicago-wide that, that you, you love that had to close their doors because of the pandemic? And what was the common theme there, the common thread? Yeah, I mean, I think we haven't seen, because of the relief funds, um, that that all of us working together um, as advocates and, and partners uh, were able to secure, we haven't seen widespread closures. Handfuls, yes. But um, I think, you know, I think folks have been hanging out. I think we're at, we sort of kicked the can down the road a bit on that. And what we might see, you know, as Julie's referencing, is this sort of scale back um, closure cycle 
coming up in, you know, 23 and 24, because folks have said to us, you know, we've mainly got our budget secure through this year or through next year. And then we hit, you know, what they're describing as a a fiscal cliff. So I think um, we're likely to see some more of those scale backs and closures um, coming up. Uh, And this is why it's all the more important for us to remember, particularly also, as Julie was mentioning, you know, the arts are are part of uh, our civic fabric, but they are they're problem solvers. Right. Mm -hmm. So what Julie was talking about was not just art making, but community development, um, economic development, um, engagement in in civic and social issues well beyond uh, our stages or our galleries. So I think the city is is really starting to understand the role that arts and culture can play in that um, in a much broader uh, civic narrative. And and we need that investment to follow. The changes that you talked about at, at Hubbard Street Dance, David, I mean, do, do you feel that any of it affected production level with shows? No, I don't think that it has. I think, you know, Hubbard Street, uh, just like Claire and Julie were talking about, has been uh, we're creatives at heart, and so we've we've been able to pivot. And I don't think that it has affected our the level of our production. We have 14 really amazing world class dancers. We have choreographers who are excited to come to Chicago to work with our dancers, to work with uh, our new artistic director Linda Denise. I think we've also done some. We've uh, there's been a number of initiatives that ha- that we've pivoted on that have um, ended up being beneficial. You know, we're in a um, an adaptive reuse space in the Water Tower Place Mall now. So we've been able to control costs there and get in front of new audiences. Um, we're nationalizing our board, which has been really cool. Before the pandemic, I never would have thought we would have had a national a national board. But then with the advent of Zoom, we now have a third of our board is across the country. They're in New York. They're in L.A. They're in Florida. They're in Colorado. Mm, and so we've been able to really find um, as much as possible some silver linings in the pandemic. And, and Claire, so that we are clear, how are arts organizations typically funded? Is there a common model? Well, you know, I think it's the nonprofit arts model is is obviously different than some of our for-profit um, creative colleagues who are based on uh, pretty much exclusively earned revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the nonprofit side of the fence, it's a mix, right? It's it, earned revenue is a huge piece of the puzzle, and that's where most folks have taken the biggest hit. Um, as Dave mentioned, um, combination of individual giving, grants. Um, it's a portfolio of of funding that is uh, is a kind of a delicate mix. And and when you lose or take a hit in one piece of that, the puzzle um, doesn't come together. And and for organizations like Julie's um, and many others that have been reliant on free programming, uh, the earned revenue piece has not been a part of the mix for a couple of years. And so the the grants and um, individual giving piece has to support the entirety of the program. Yeah, talk more about that, Julie, the, the challenges of relying on grants. Yeah, so that's why we never did. That's why we were a sustainable, very strong 
organization prior to the pandemic, um, we were always charging a ticket price and receiving grants. In fact, when Night Out in the Park started, which is the umbrella that we were rolled under in 2013, and um, they pride themselves in offering arts and culture in neighborhoods all across the city, and and that's true. However, when the pandemic happened, um, they formalized that it had to be free. It was free. They wanted it to be free programming before. We had many conversations when they would say, you guys need to offer your show for free. And I would say, you're creating an atmosphere of arts welfare. You should be encouraging every arts organization to go into communities and charge an affordable ticket price, $5. Communities want that. They want to buy in. Um, it's, it's saying to communities, this is a value. This is not free programming. This is of value. It's an arts welfare. And that's, I said that in a park district meeting once. I said, because eventually your funding is going to dry up and then you've, and then arts organizations are going to have their hand out. And, and that's, that's essentially what happened in the pandemic with us mm -hmm. was um, we offered it free, but we never intended to stay free. They wouldn't allow us to go back to charging a ticket price interesting. so that we could sustain ourselves. So it, it's going to be interesting this year. We're doing one weekend. It's a Hail Mary. I think there's a lot of support. We are charging a ticket price. It's going to be $20 a ticket. Um, we, we like to think it's the best, <laughs> most affordable show in town. Our artists come from all over the world. They... Many of them you can see at Cirque du Soleil for $200. You'll see for us for $20. So um, hoping that we can continue mm -hmm. um, into for future generations. I think it's an important, if, if arts and culture are going to continue, uh, we need to hit it at a community level and at an, edu and at an education level too. Yeah. We need to educate audiences. If, if the model's shifting, we need to bring participants, arts and community participants along with us. Yeah, and I, I want to note uh, something that we sort of touched on earlier, but I mean, Crane Chicago Business is reporting some of Chicago's largest foundations, including some big names that are funding arts organizations across the city, like the Harris Theater, that they've seen a drop in assets since last year. Huh. Claire, how much do arts organizations depend on their funding? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely critical. I think um, I think a lot of organizations are having conversations right now about the balance of commercially viable work and, you know, work that audiences will pay for versus potentially new work, lesser known work, more challenging work. Um, that has been sort of the basis of the nonprofit performing arts business model that um, the new work, maybe the less kind of commercially viable or successful work mm -hmm. has had to be underwritten by um, grants and individual donor support. Um, so I think that's the, the real rub here is if uh, performing arts organizations are really forced to move toward more commercially viable programming. You know, there's something to be said for that. It's appealing to audiences. Audiences are excited about it. They're coming to these um, performances and these shows. That's real and, and, and not necessarily a bad thing. But at the same time, we need to think about the pipeline of, you know, shows like Hamilton, which started in a nonprofit context and who knew whether it was going to be successful or not successful. And those types of R&D moments um, need to happen in a, in a subsidized framework. You know, the new work needs to be tested um, to, to 
test whether it's commercially viable. And that's the danger here if yeah. we if we move toward exclusively commercial uh, propositions. That scares me because I see a lot of, I know that not a lot of organizations have closed, but on our level, the game changers, the ones that are doing more experimental work, we do, we have, we've seen our comrades close at record amounts. Uh, and so mm. we have to nurture the game changers. Uh, what's something I'm curious about, David, is, is whether there's a sense of community when it comes to this funding or can a perceived scarcity of funding make it feel as though you're all competing I think it's always a little bit of both. Um, there's nothing like commiserating with my fellow uh, executive director, CEOs of arts organizations. And I feel really supported uh, by folks like Claire and, and other folks in the community and, and Julie, we've just met today, but I yeah. already know that we're going to be friends. So that feels great. But I think um, uh, our, our Harbor Street's season 46 theme is abundance. And so we're trying to be in that abundance mindset. But um, I think when the industry is in such a rough spot. It's it's always um, tempting to to look at it as as uh, a scarcity mindset. So I, I want to be blunt, and it really does sort of uh, piggyback off of some uh, sentiments that we were talking about earlier in the program. There might be folks who are listening to us right now and wondering why should we support arts organizations. So I, I do want to hear from all of you on this, and I'll, I'll start with you, Julie. Talk about the benefit the community gets from the arts. Yeah, I mean, well the the arts have the power, and Claire mentioned this, to address social issues. Um, you know, when we toured, we were the only company performing during a shutdown pandemic in 2020. And we saw the transformative power of the arts. We had aldermen from neighborhoods on the south side, the west side, call and say, can you come to our neighborhood? We need a shot of joy. We need to remember why why we're here, what we care about as a community. Um, and so we, we, we brought the circus there, and, and it can change people's lives. We've seen it. Um, so I think people should care because what we, what we do at Midnight Circus is we go into a community and we bring the community together within their, their neighborhood park. Um, if people come together in their park, they're more, if good things are happening in a park, bad things aren't happening in a park. If, if you gather with your neighbors to watch an arts event in your park, you're getting to know your neighbors and you're more likely to care about your neighbors and your neighborhood. So we've we've seen it firsthand. We've seen over the 17 years we've been bringing our company into neighborhoods all across Chicago. We've seen organizations, uh, we've seen neighborhoods change. We've seen organizations, community groups form from presenting the circus, just people that wanted to make their community better come together. And now it's, you know, the Ogden Park advisory council. Yeah. They didn't have an, an advisory council prior to presenting the circus. So we know it can change lives. Yeah. It's transformative. What do you think, David? I mean, obviously, I think that the communal experience that Julie is talking about is really important to bring communities together. Um, you know, there's nothing like sitting in the audience of a, of a Midnight Circus or Hubbard Street or any of the great arts organizations in Chicago and having that communal experience of awe. It just really changes who you are, and it, it can be a deeply spiritual experience. I think that for Hubbard Street, I think on top of that is, um, you know, contemporary dance is dance of now. And so that's always changing. And one of Hubbard Street's, um, I think, biggest achievements is allowing 
um, people to see themselves and think about themselves in new ways. So this season um, we had, I think a lot of people think of dance and they think of the Nutcracker, which, you know, I like the Nutcracker. Yeah. <laughs> the Nutcracker is cool. The Nutcracker is cool. Um, but there's a lot of other dance out there. And um, and because Hubbard Street is dance of now, contemporary dance, we have an ability to showcase new forms of dance that have a deeper connection with our communities, a deeper connection. Um, for instance, this season we premiered a piece called Dear Frankie by a um, choreographed by Rennie Harris, who's out of New York, but the piece was inspired by Frankie Knuckles. And I can't tell you how many people came to the show and walked out and said, oh my gosh, it was so moving to see these movements that I did at the warehouse, you know, 30, 40 years ago on stage presented in a way that is uplifting the art form Mm -hmm. to, you know, to the stage. And I think that really changes people, how people feel about themselves, how people feel about their communities. And I think that's really, you know, a magical part of the arts is being able to elevate what some people think of as everyday experiences to uh, to a stage that that's producing the highest quality art in the world. Claire, novelist and, and playwright Monica Byrne wrote in the Washington Post about this same topic today. Uh, she says that the theater in its current form shouldn't be rescued. She goes on to write, quote, for theater as we know it to have any future at all, a new economic model must take its place, founded on a simple principle, fund artists directly. Then let the artists produce their own work, rent their own venues, and pay their own collaborators, end quote. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think our model in this business has been um, for probably, you know, as long as I've been working in this field, which is a couple of decades and much longer than that, um, focused around funding organizations um, and and to the um, and perhaps not as focused on funding individual artists and creative workers. Um, that is changing, and I think it, it's not an either-or proposition. It needs to be a both-and proposition. But I do agree that uh, increasing focus on direct support for artists and creatives, um, which happens, frankly, you know, both at our city and our state in terms of government funding, and we're continuing to encourage you know, private funders to, to um follow follow that lead mm-hmm. um, in terms of direct investment in, individu- in, in, in individual artists and creatives. Um, and that's pretty unique in the country that both our state arts council and our city um, does direct funding to individual artists and creatives. We need to keep that. We need to increase it. Um, and, you know, artists are, and creatives are never going to stop making and creating. Um, organizations may evolve, change, um, morph over time, but you're not going to stop that creative impulse. So I'm I'm in agreement uh, with with the article today. Yeah. And um, again, not not to stop funding organizations, but to truly increase and invest in individual creatives is a great proposition. So let's say let's stay with that thought. Yeah. What's your ideal then, and how you want to see arts organizations funded? Clearly, like how how do we shift our thinking to see investment in the arts as an economic engine for the city yeah yeah i mean i think we have as i think we've talked about before sasha there's everyone has a role to play in this 
puzzle um, and in the evolution and sustainability of our cultural institutions and our individual creative workers. Um, we need our city to continue to value the role of artists and creatives, not just as, you know, um, elite or separate uh, from from um, our civic culture, but really integral um, civic problem solvers, um, workers, professionals. Uh, we need to be, we, our city needs to continue to invest in both individual creative workers and or organizations. Mm -hmm. We need our private philanthropy and our corporations where we've seen a lot of corporations backing away from arts and culture funding. We need those corporations to realize that if they're wanting to invest in economic development, in closing racial wealth gaps, in um, violence prevention, arts and culture has a role to play in all of these other CSR, corporate social responsibility issues that um, face our city and yeah. so we need we need and we need audiences to continue participating so um and we need i'll say and have said we'll say again uh, like dave and julie um our cultural leaders to continue evolving and innovating yeah. on the business model so there's everyone's got their part to play so leave us with this julie because we're, we're just about out of time i mean what more do you want to see local and state officials do here to support I mean, we've had a lot of support from our state um, uh, officials and our local officials. Um, I think uh, I'd, I'd love them to keep advocating. Um, I do want to say, to add on to what Claire said of a, of, of a path forward, we also need to see arts organizations um, um, contribute to the communities that they play. Because it's by doing that that we create audiences, our audience base. If there's no give back to the community, if there's no um, meeting Where's the them, incentive for folks to come out. Exactly. And yeah, and, it's, a, uh, it's a cycle. Anything you want to add, David, to support from local or state officials? Anything else you'd like to see? Um, I always want to see more money, but I just <laughs> I want to say thank you to Claire. The dollars. Uh, yeah, Claire for her advocacy. And I want to call out uh, Commissioner Harkey for her advocacy on behalf of uh, arts organizations around the state. So. Yeah. We'll leave it there. David McDermott is the executive director of Hubbard Street Dance, Julie Jenkins, artistic director of Midnight Circus, and Claire Rice, executive director of Arts Alliance Illinois. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.